Hey, welcome to the NATO Sessions. Today, uh, we are going to kike out the jams. It's going to be a hella, hella Jewy episode. Um, <laughs> uh, we are at the Contemporary Jewish Museum, hours away from a, a live literary death match. But beforehand, we're bunkered down in the basement uh, uh, to talk about some Jewy stuff. As Jews should be. As Jews should be. Jews we're, and enemies of Jews. <laughs> we're we're in, a, in a basement in a wardrobe or cupboard of some sort. Um, I have been, I'm cranky because I've been arguing with people on Twitter all day about nonsense. Um, Me too. <laughs> you do, do you, is that your day too? Yeah. So, okay, so uh, my guests are uh, Rabbi David Kasher. Boom. Boom. Of the uh, uh, Keva, some Jew educational thing, yeah. which is redundant. Uh, I, yeah. I uh, mean, so. Jews like that educational stuff. Yeah. Uh, Caitlin Roper from Wired Magazine. Do you, do you, do you, do you claim from Wired Magazine? I mean, you know, from my mother, from my father, from Berkeley, California, but also Wired Magazine. Also Wired, Wired Magazine. Yeah. Uh, That's and, how I get by. And Ben Greenman, uh, Greenman from New York, the, the New Yorker, <laughs> who is uh, staying at the Stanford Court Hotel if anyone wants to find him later. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not live. We're not live. No. So when you say find me later, it'll be too late. Yeah, right. No. So someone else's door will get kicked yeah. in at the Stanford Come Court by. Hotel. Come by. Knock on the door as much as you want. Yeah. Uh, you could even say the room number, and someone, uh, <laughs> someone else would be on the number. number. Uh, 1771. Um, so, Ben and Caitlin, you both contributed to this book called Unscrolled, uh, which was put out by Reboot. So, uh, can any of you explain to me what Reboot and Unscrolled are in some concise fashion? Uh, <laughs> sure, I can take a crack at it. Are, now, are you a rebooter as well? Yeah. Oh, wait, wait. Actually, before we do it, so uh, the NATO Sessions podcast is a project of 3,200 stories, the digital portal of the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. Uh, our producer, Dan Wolf, is here on the ones and twos. I don't know what that means, but uh, that's some kind of hip-hop thing that I think people are into these days. So uh, anyway, carry on. Reboot. Okay, Reboot. So Reboot is a... Uh, a Jewish uh, think lab and network that, that I guess in theory brings together youngish Jewish people in media, not all media, but largely in some sort of media capacity to rethink basic questions about Judaism. And a lot of them are people our age, I don't think we're all exactly the same age, but roughly our age, 30s, 40s, who lapsed at some point and then came back to Judaism and, and rethought it. And then Unscrolled, which I'm now going to thump against the desk, is a... Uh, it's that big. It's a book where 54 people, I don't know if they're all rebooters, do you know? I think not. They all, all, I, all the writers and artists? I think they are. I think they okay. are, yeah. So all the writers and artists in it are rebooters, and we were all given a portion of the Torah, like a bar mitzvah thing, and then we had to uh, reinterpret it in, in modern writing or art or photography or poetry or whatever. So we brought it up to the, the modern world in some fashion. So I, uh, I am... I feel arguably the reboot target demographic, which is to say I am uh, in my 30s. I am strongly Jewish identified, but I'm your basic three-day-a-year Jew. You know, like I don't, I don't know that much crap, but 
I, I'm very Jewy on stage. But I feel like super negative about it. It's, yeah. To totally disaffect it. Uh, but you do podcasts. I do podcasts. Right. I do everything in a Jewy way. I mean, I, I was like, my act is Jewy enough that I feel like I've become like a Jewish Rorschach test on stage. And like when I stand by the doors, you know, at the after shows, people come up to me and they're like, thank you. I'm Jewish. I appreciate hearing <laughs> that Jewy thing that you do. Or other people, like, people will come up to me and be like, I'm not Jewish. How can I fuck a Jewish guy? Uh, you know, <laughs> you're like, right here uh, <laughs> do, they, do they thank you for bringing the Jewish perspective to comedy yeah right finally yeah I uh, <laughs> often yeah often I'm the only white guy and so I'm like on the show and I'll be like F- I know finally a white Jew getting hurt in comedy uh, so you know I feel like uh, so sort of make the case to me like why why is the why is Jewish identity specifically still dynamic and relevant uh, in 2013 Everyone, everyone, the in. rabbi should tell us. I I'm mean, just asking. To tell you the truth, I mean, I don't know if I can speak too um, insightfully to Jewish identity, but I Judy, do think let's that, say let's let's well, say I, Judaism. No, I, I mean, I'm just saying, like, well, you just referenced this book, and this book is about another book which the Jews have been reading. I mean, people of the book, they, this is the one they've been reading for thousands and thousands of years, and there's something I think dynamic and compelling about the idea of a book that sort of changed the world and the people who have been just immersed in it for, you know, for most of, of, of sort of civilization. And, uh, and, and that's, you know, like there's something to that. Like it, it has influenced at least like, you know, half of the world and, and, you know, we came up with it. So like, that's like, that's a, that's a pretty neat thing. And I've always clung to this idea I learned when I was a kid that Judaism was about um, talking back and questioning. So I think the idea of this book is to kind of get loud and crazy with this book that we don't think of in that way, that we don't think of as, I mean, maybe it's flexible among rabbinical scholars, but maybe not as flexible as it is when Damon Lindelof is interpreting some of the Torah through a script and someone else does an infographic and someone else does a comic. Um, and I think, I think that is the thing that I cling to that I identify with about Judaism is that um, flexibility and plasticity and um, sort of uh, need to question and, and be cranky. And also, the, I don't think we're looking to replace or supplant the actual Torah with this book. I think we're looking to go on the shelf maybe next or between it and like the Turner Diaries. So on your shelf, <laughs> it should go Bible, unscrolled, Turner Diaries. But I think the point that uh, David mentioned And then before, Fifty Shades of Grey. And then <laughs> right on its side, <laughs> pushed in the back. But they, the point that you mentioned that it's a book about another book, I think is a good one because I think every book is basically. Yeah. Uh, this is more overt about it because the, the charter for it was grapple with the book. But as a writer, and I've written novels and nonfiction books also, every book basically is about another book. You just don't always say so. This this case, we actually say so. And it was interesting to look through and see, I mean, there's so many different approaches. That's the other thing. In the reboot fashion, they weren't tremendously, uh, there, there wasn't a lot of control over what the approaches were. So people, as a result, took all kinds of different approaches, some graphic novel-oriented, some more essayistic, some just wrote straight fiction. And so I guess you start to see how people grapple with these questions. And then the questions, you know, in the Bible are basically all the questions. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I think what you just said about books is true, that every book is, in a sense, about other books and all the books that have informed the writer of that book. And I also think that's true about culture in general. Like, culture is always the inheritor and reinventor of 
another culture, the culture before it, many cultures before it. And like, and that's true for Jewish culture too. I think I agree with Caitlin. The plasticity of it is that it is on the one hand, a commentary directly on something that people have been commenting on for thousands of years. But on the other hand, it's the newest iteration of that. It's the new version of that. It's the reprocessing of that. And I, I would also say that, uh, like, you know, getting to actually think about how a Bible story relates to your life is, you know, that's a weird exercise. I don't do that on the regular, right? <laughs> but like getting to actually spend time thinking about how this story affects me, um, that's, that's, uh, that's, it's kind of an honor and also um, a weird opportunity to like get creative with something. And I think in doing that and in, in the whole idea of reinterpreting and thinking about and asking questions about is actually internalizing the stories as opposed to just letting them be something you do in synagogue or like something your grandmother did or that some people in the old country did. Like keeping it fresh is part of the deal. So I like, um, I like that this book project is actually trying to do that, keeping it fresh. Yeah, and I think that like you know, the whole, people are creeped out by the Bible, no doubt, in, in many parts of contemporary <laughs> culture. And I think part of the reason that they're creeped out by it, despite that it's this, you know, bestseller, is that it's been sort of frozen and ossified and, and the whole approach to it has been don't change a single understanding or interpretation or idea ab about this book. It has to be read exactly as it is and applied exactly as it is. And there's no, you know what I mean? And, and if you're not on board, like then jump off off the ship, and I think that like the whole idea that this is a dynamic and interpretive and flexible um, tradition is, a, is it's a radically different approach to the whole idea of there being a Bible in culture. It's also that it's personal. Like I'm creeped out when I go online to look up Bible verse, which I had to do for this project. There's King James. There's other translations, and then there's always that modern language translation where they, people call other people dude or whatever, mm -hmm. and that creeps me out even more mm -hmm. because that seems like a very uh, superficial attempt to make it relevant. These are all personal story. They're all personal interpretations rather than saying, "Well, we've brought the Bible now into nineteen whatever nineteen ninety nine or two thousand thirteen as a whole." These are people, and some people are more traditional and you know some people actually wrestled lightly the subtitle is 54 writers and artists wrestle with it some people maybe didn't even wrestle they just kind of laid a hand on it or or fondled near it they fondled it <laughs> <laughs> exactly some people fondled the door uh, um, so i, I want to put to caitlin and ben a, a, a conversation that that david and i had uh, on his on his deck last month which is that that on the one hand, you have a set of stories, and on the other hand, you have a set of values about how we should conduct ourselves in the world, and how are those two related to each other? Uh, like, why are the stories important to continue being in dialogue with, to think about what it means to be a decent person in the world? Well, I definitely, I mean, because I did this project, I had to grapple with that question, like, what is the story telling me? How do I feel about whether I identify with it? I mean, in Shalak Laka, which is the piece that... Um, that, uh, that I ended up writing about, God is fucking pissed. He's so fucking pissed. He's super angry and vengeful, it seems to me. My, my interpretation of that is like, so there's the, the actual tale, right? And then I start thinking about it. I'm like, that, that's kind of creepy, like a vengeful God. Like, I don't identify with that. What does that mean? And he actually, I like, look back through my Hebrew Bible and I'm like, you know, there's a lot of stories about how angry he is and how angry people make him. And basically, he's like that dad who is constantly disappointed 
plus why not an a you know it's like and i and i and then then i start thinking about like well what what is that how does that translate into my values what do i think not what do i think god should be but what do i think about vengeance and about ruling with an iron fist and about you know making dictating things um and i think that's how like the, the stories are the way in life not just bible stories that we kind of test out ideas and feel out sort of how we feel about them um so that's how you know that's how i see the relationship yeah, and I think that it's a, it's a question of which is the primary text or the primary set of questions. And I know through most of my life, the value questions have been primary, and then the way that they're framed in the Bible has been to varying degrees of secondary. I mean, sometimes not even secondary. When I, I got bar mitzvah and then didn't basically practice any version of anything for you know 25 years, then I had kids. And so I have a son who's going to be bar mitzvah in April. And as he started going through his portion, he has the portion, I don't know what it's called in Hebrew, but when Aaron's sons are killed for trespassing in the, the temple, they're, they're uh, murdered by God. Rabbi, do you, do you have that passage? You know, you figured it? Yeah, yeah. That one. Yeah, you know, you know where it is in the Bible. <laughs> yeah. And so he, so that's as... None you almost flunked out of rabbinical school right then. <laughs> we, it's, it's, you don't have to... Uh, he knows where it is. It's in the Bible. Yeah. They, they, uh, it's in the book of Leviticus. So that's the same kind of God, that same vengeful God that, that you mentioned, Caitlin. And they, they, uh, so the question is, through most of your life, you grapple with these questions. What about uh, fairness? What about honesty? What about fidelity? What about financial responsibility? What about honoring parents? I never thought of them in terms of the Bible at all. When I went back in artificially, it's more or less all there as it should be because people were grappling with these same things whenever the book was written by humans or God. And I just, I'd like to sort of go around the table a little bit to follow up on what you were just saying about sort of what, 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 where did you come from? Like what, what's your personal trajectory with the, with Judaism? Yeah. I I grew up in Miami, um, born in Chicago. And, and is Dexter accurate? Is Miami like 30% per capita serial killers? It's 40% Los Angeles and 30% Toronto. (laughs) It's, um, yeah, everyone's a serial killer. Except the guy who's killing the serial killers. Right. It's, it's kind of, it works out. It's, it's a double negative. Yeah, it works out <laughs> fine in the end. But it's, uh, so I grew up in Miami and, and my parents, my mother's family had been fairly observant. My father's family, not that observant. And I was raised in a conservative synagogue, Kapar Mitzvah, um, and then did nothing, really. I mean, I didn't believe anything. I didn't believe in God. I got locked out of my house the year after I got Bar Mitzvah because I told my mom, well, I'm an adult now in this tradition, and I'm not going to any service because I don't believe in this. This is, you know, slavery. I'm not doing this. And she locked the door, and then I was outside. In Miami, it's not as much a punishment as maybe some other places. But uh, then as I got older and had children, I, I wanted them, I have two boys, I wanted them to at least go to Hebrew school and get bar mitzvah, at which point I kind of assumed they'll lapse too because they already are heading in that direction. But I wanted it in them because I think it's, a, it's useful DNA because, you know, whatever they end up doing with it. They claim they don't believe in God, they're not interested, but they are interested. And they're interested in finding out the argument, the grounds for the argument, and they're very moral in in the way that this book is in ways that they probably don't see yet. But it's all in there at some level. So uh, I was uh, raised in Berkeley, California, and uh, where I attended Temple Bethel. Hey. uh, (laughs) Where I, um, where, where, um, about 12, when I was in Hebrew school, um, I said to my dad, I don't want to go to Hebrew school anymore. I don't want to be about mitzvah. I don't care. I don't like the kids in my after school program. They're jerks. Uh, 
and I'm not going back. And my dad paused. And in what I really see to this day as one of the most genius parenting <laughs> um, moves of all time, definitely in my life, possibly of all human time, he said, <laughs> he said to me, um, okay, fine. You don't have to go to Hebrew school. All you have to do is tell your nanny, his mom, my <laughs> grandmother, that you're not going to be a bat mitzvah. And of course, I finished Hebrew school. And, uh, and I was bat mitzvahed. And, you know, like Ben, I did not, um, I did not uh, feel particularly religious. I went to temple when my dad made me. Um, losing my, losing nanny, losing my grandmother, was the first time I really sort of felt any kind of religious pain when she, when she passed away. Um, because it was so horrible, and she was someone I was very close to, and um, and and I started thinking about sitting shiva and what that means, and it kind of felt right to me. That was like shiva was a way for me to sort of come back to Judaism because it made some sense. I felt some um, something was really right elementally about that um, that tradition. Um, but uh, and then until until I joined Reboot and spent a weekend in the um, in Utah thinking about my Judaism. Where Jews go. You know, to Utah. Um, you know, again, like I, 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 I got married um, and divorced and uh, my, at my wedding I thought about Judaism a little. You know, I was married by a rabbi. Um, haven't had a get yet. So I have, that, I have that to look for. I think he has to be here though too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, He's going to scribble it Let me just write on this napkin here. <laughs> I walk around, I break a glass, I put a glass back together. He, can, he can Skype it in. <laughs> but, I, but I just just would say that like I bring up the, the you know, Shiva and the marriage to say that um, it's those kind of monumental life events that end up for me tinged with Judaism and it reminds me again I don't have kids yet um, I could imagine having to defend my, my religious beliefs which really are just sort of culturally inherited things um, to my children and wanting them to know about it like the fact that you were not particularly religious and then had kids it's like you got to tell them something sure. and they're asking and this gets back to the questions they ask about right and wrong all the time like all the little kids I know they want everything to be fair and they want it explained and you know, there is not like you say God wants it this way, but there is something to be said for those stories in the Bible, actually helping to explain some of those things. Some other parts, like this particular story where God is super pissed, like I don't think that's going to go very far for teaching kids. But uh, but I think there is something about um, you know the way you teach people, teach little people about your religion too. Um, okay, my turn. I I um I guess I was born into a family that was like, I guess, lightly traditional. That is to say, they weren't religious, my parents, but I guess they were, they were sort of into it. Like we, there was a, there was a temple in our lives and, um, my parents split when I was three and I guess in sort of the, the chaos and trauma of the divorce, they each decided to change their lives and use Judaism as a sort of variable that they changed. So my mom just threw it out the window and we, we had been living in New York. She moved us out here to California and we just basically lived a good old liberal, Bay Area life, and um, and my father went the other way and sort of dive, dove back into his Hasidic roots, and he, you know, his one generation back had come from a sort of ultra orthodox family and married very quickly into a um, uh, a very uh, very very sort of shtetl like community, um, you know, Yiddish speaking sort of black hat wearing community, and um, and so that was 
the childhood that I had was sort of bouncing back and forth between those two worlds, mostly out here, a secular kid in California, but every summer I would spend, you know, dressed in black and white and, and, and trying to sort of imitate this world that was pretty much foreign to me, but also I think in many ways enchanting. Like there was something about it that I found fascinating. Maybe it was just like trying to be like my dad. But, um, but I always felt that that was like this tension that somehow I had to like figure out which world I was going to end up in, decide between being secular, being religious, being Jewish, not Jewish, whatever. And then, then I think I just kind of got into high school and college and figured out there were girls and parties and things that were more interesting. So I forgot all about that for a while. And then after college, my father passed away and suddenly I was like in the midst of grief and feeling like I had to figure out this question that I've been wrestling with and spent, I guess, the next 15 years trying to figure out the question. And, um, you know, and I think have come to, I don't, I don't think I figured it out, but like it's been a process of trying to sort of reconcile still those two experiences, which I think as a younger guy felt like, like screwed up and schizophrenic to me, but now I think is in some ways very um, typical of the Jewish experience in that it's always kind of a, 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 some kind of admixture of Jewish culture and tradition and some encounter with the, with the broader world. So, and then the only other thing, other thing I'll say is I think probably the thing that actually tipped me into like rabbi dumb was my encounter with the Torah. And there was just something about the, the merger of, of intellectualism and spirituality in the conversation that I was, that I would, that was intoxicating and that I hadn't, I hadn't, I hadn't found anywhere else. So Good stuff. Hmm? I have a question that came out of all those answers for the rabbi, actually. Can I ask him a question? No. Is that allowed? <laughs> yes. In this no Jewish questions tradition. in Judaism. So everybody mentioned sort of getting closer to Judaism or remembering it at, at milestones. The birth of children, the death of parents, marriage or divorce. And one of the things I know that Reboot thinks about and that I've thought about since Reboot is what you do with it the rest of the time. Because the, there's, there's this sort of you know, all these moral questions come up in micro form every single day. And there are ways, obviously, that at a funeral, you're going to think very heavily about Judaism. A, the, the ritual's there for you. The people are there. It's remembered in that way. So as a rabbi, what's the sort of feeling about retaining people in between those milestones or how to retain them? It's the three-day, it's, it's the broader version of the three-day-a-year Jew, you know, where you could tie holidays and I don't know what else. I guess you do Seder at your house. But stretched over the life... What about, because I still don't know that, I mean, I obviously identify very heavily with it, but I don't really practice in between milestones. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, and for me, like I, you know, uh, uh, I, there are a bunch of things that have nothing to do with the, or that don't explicitly have to do with the religion that I understand and experience as being expressions of Jewishness. Mm -hmm. You know, things like my relationship to humor, my relationship to activism, my relationship to intellectualism, that those, you know, the, the, my relationship to family. I mean, there's a bunch of things that to me are things that I understand as being Jewy things about me and articulate that way. Um, and, and I've like, I three of my four grandparents are die, are dead, and and I when my grandmother died, the first one I found myself at you know, I was like, what is it? How can I be a Jew when there are no more boobies? You know, like when all the boobies are gone, what makes me still Jewish anymore? Like when there's not anyone who can talk Yiddish to me and grew up in a Jewish neighborhood that was all you know that was insular and all that kind of stuff. Like so. 
it's, they're sort of like the, these things that I experience sort of be, between the three days a year, and then there are the things that are more tied to, to this book and the other, and the and mm-hmm. the source material and the ritual observance. Yeah. And I don't know how to how to sort of synthesize those different streams. Well, I mean, look, I, I what's the answer, David? <laughs> okay, so here's how you be Jewish. Um, I, I won't try and explain Jewish culture to you because we all participate in Jewish culture, but just, just I think that some answer, some over, overly simplified answer to the question of Jewish... Oh, and Mike Gluttony, I forgot that. ...tradition <laughs> yeah. or, or ritual or religion or whatever, is that um, it is, it can be bifurcated into this, the realm of study and the realm of practice, right? So study, we could talk about like studying the Torah where, you know, you guys have done that and you've contributed to the, to this study of it in terms of practice. I think there's all kinds of cycles. So you're mentioning the life cycle and that's true that Judaism has the markers for, you know, bar mitzvahs and weddings and deaths and all this. Stuff. There's also like, I think increasingly smaller cycles that Judaism takes account of. There's the yearly cycle of the calendar, which I guess we also, many of us participate in, if only three times a year. But there's also, in, in some ways, the, the most powerful one is the weekly cycle of the, of the Sabbath. The Reboot has this whole unplug project. Right. And I, I think that that's, religious or not, I think that's, that's actually a powerful notion to reintroduce to our world, to a world that, that doesn't stop and that is always sort of plugged in, this idea that you could stop and take a day of your week to just reflect. However you do that, I mean, uh, that, that, I think so many of the rituals now are tied up with, oh, I'm religious, so I do them, or I'm not religious, so that's not my zone. And it seems to me that just like you can read the stories of the Torah and and sort of contemplate the values. So too, you can reflect on the rituals of the Torah and, and extract from them values and, and even practices that can be applied to our everyday lives. And I think it, it gets even smaller than that. There's also daily cycles of what you do in the morning, what you do in the evening. You know, it may start to feel a little OCD at a certain point, you know, if you like, if you head into the world of full observance, but some of these cycles, cycles of life, I think are, are valuable just because we all have, a need for rhythm in in our lives and and some sense of 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 an order which creates a sense of of meaning. I don't know if that's too abstract, but I also notice I agree with you. I mean, I think Sabbath is powerful and unplugging is a powerful way to market today. Um, I also think it's I know it's self-selected a little bit, but all of us, all four of us, work in words. Right. And like there is something in my mind Jewish about that. Right. Like what I do as an editor and as a writer is partially something I learned from being Jewish. My dad's a writer. Many people in my family are writers like they're all you know, it's all intertwined. But the idea of thinking about stories like you asked before, thinking about stories and how they apply to your life and what they mean, looking for meaning in life through words like whether you're religious, whether you know, your job is to be a rabbi or to be a novelist um, or to be a comedian or to be an editor like those are all related. So I do feel like without like sort of patting myself on the back for doing nothing really Jewish, but then deciding that it's Jewish to do what I do. I do think there is some correlation between the way I spend my daily time and who I am. I thought a lot about this with Reboot. So the question of what makes us Jewish or what makes a person Jewish has the flip question, which is what would make you not Jewish? And other than aggressively embracing another religious tradition, I can't really think of anything because those habits that you've just mentioned or those practices are so ingrained that the the basic thing of questioning and and I don't know whether it's to what degree it's cultural or genetic or you know it's probably a mix of all those things 
I just know that for my kids, I had kids that the second they were given a rule, the first response was, why do we have to do it this way? Why are you making this rule? And yet then there's also a certain amount of following the rule and a respect for the rule. And that's without any religious context. That's just the personality that they have because they get it from me and they get it from my wife. And, and so I, the, the question of what would, what would de-Jewify people, if anything. Now, obviously, there's a degree to which as a rabbi and as a religion, there's a retention issue, how you keep people in it in a, in a more uh, real way. And I assume different rabbis, different congregations, and different scholars have different opinions about that. You know, is somebody a Jew if they're just free-floating? You ask them, are you Jewish? And they say, or, you know, when you walk in the Lubavitcher guys come after you with, on, on Sukkot, and they ask you, are you Jewish? And you walk away from them, or I walk away from them. I don't know if you do. Do you avoid them? Uh, I mean, I smile and, and walk on, but and I smile. Have you ever punched one? I have never, would never punch one. <laughs> what kind of rabbi are you? Um, not, not a, not a, not you a fighting could, rabbi. What about the, the I'm a, love I'm and a the lover, not, or, lover, not a fighter. Ancient weapons. <laughs> no, but I, like, so I want to challenge a little bit, like okay. all of you in, in what you're saying and, and start with NATO. Like I, I certainly Bring recognize it, the, <laughs> the, the joy and value of Jewish culture, but if it amounts to things like humor and questioning and intellectualism like first of all we don't have a market on those things there's plenty of intellectual people there's plenty of funny people and then and then when it gets down to like you know herring and um latkes i mean at a certain point it's it's just not significant like i'm all about the reinvention and reimagining of judaism but it seems to me that it has to be the reinvention of a thing that is that you have to be engaged with Judaism I, like it, it's 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 not it doesn't seem to me to be a, a culture um, rich enough to preserve if it's just about the trappings of like what we ate and kind of just the way we sort of were you know I mean I don't know but that was my question before there's a, so there's a certain amount of inertia if you're born into a Jewish family and you have Jew elderly Jewish relatives, the cycle that you mentioned before, is going to bring most of us around in some way. <clears throat> Meaning that when grandparents die, when parents die, we get closer to it again in some fashion or when we have kids. It's the, it's the, it's the gaps and the, the interstices that are really interesting to me because of what you just said now. What is that thing that you are following? What, are the, what is the center that you're circling around in those other times? And I don't know the answer either. I think it's, very, it's different for different people. And, and Reboot has its own answer, you know, which is not everybody's answer. And it's sort of an artificial um, uh, resupply. Or, you know, it, it substitutes for these things. Because then you start talking about these questions through the prism of Reboot. So, and that's not a religion. That's just mm -hmm. an organization, you know, that's trying to reconnect you with some aspect of the religion. But, yeah, I mean, most, I, I would say most of the Jews that I know don't practice actively most of the year. But... Well, I mean, so I mean, I have a couple of thoughts. One is that I I hear what you're saying, David, but I also like I can't totally tell the difference in my head between we're Jewish because we're, Jews have been intellectuals and been funny and have eaten herring, herring for a long time, and we're Jewish because we relate to the Torah and Jews have been into the Torah for a long time. Like it's all. It's I mean. It, well, but There's, I mean, I mean, the difference is that this is how is the Torah is our, not herring? This is our story. Like, this is our inherit. Say, imagine in Western culture, we're like um, really happy, um, but we just want to cut out 
um, all of Greek philosophy and um, and the novel as a concept because I just don't like I'm just not interested in those things. Like it just seems to me like how could you ignore the central narrative and the sort of the, the practices which have informed a people's lives over thousands of years just because of some ideological shifts? Like yeah, let's say we're different now and we're atheist and we're feminist and like things have changed. But like if we're not engaged at all with our like with our central story, the one that formed us as a people, I just feel like, I mean, I like locks too, but like, but, but then we have to turn that back on you. Like how then do we engage as regular people? Like you, you, like I, I don't go to temple every week. I enjoy Torah analysis and discussion. Like I don't have a place for that in my life. Like I don't have a way to bring that in. I'm not opposed to it. I will, you know, if you want to read a passage, I'm happy to like <laughs> talk about it because I like it. And it was one thing that was fun about reboot was getting to do that. There's, but, uh, but I say like, you're the rabbi. Tell me like, how am I? Well, now I will promote my organization, Keva. <laughs> we build little learning groups for people in their homes, keva.org. You can read my blog, parshanut.com. Like I could go on and on. There's all kinds of Jewish institutions that like, of people like myself out there trying to create these opportunities. But it also like, yes, I could l- list a long, a long, a long uh, series of great op- Jewish opportunities, but it involves engagement on your part. I mean, like we got to learn to start doing the work like you got. And I'm not saying you're personally not, but I'm, I, I do feel like there is. You're saying do, me personally not, <laughs> um, which they, is fun. There I'll, is this no, culture of just sort of like, I'm, I'm not interested to prove it to me, but I kind of would like to be interested so who's gonna who's gonna serve Judaism on a platter? And it's like, if if indeed it's gonna be our Judaism that's an expression of us, like it's it's gotta we've but, gotta invest in. But it. when you talk about our story, what, like I guess I mean what I keep coming back to is why is why does why does the the continuing relevance of our story need to be a religious one and not a historical one? Well, I mean, I just don't think that you I I don't think it has to be any particular. Um, thing as it heads into the future. But I don't think that you can deal with the historical Judaism without taking into account the religion that existed in that history. You know, I mean, that's just, that's just a part of who we are, just as, you know, every civilization has some spiritual tradition and some intellectual tradition. And, and when you ignore the religion of Judaism, I mean, I'm really not saying everybody needs to believe in God and that's all. Like, that's not my point. It's just that, like, all of our laws and and ideas about politics and poems and like all of that is like you're just throwing out the everything with the bathwater okay but like throwing this throwing is like that's an active verb right like throwing it out like being passive being lazy i'm I'm saying like (laughs) i i mean when it when it when when it intersects with my life like you described your own story and the point in your story as an editor where everything changes is when you realize the magic of this intellectual pursuit with a religious one right but i didn't have that right so like you know that's something has to tip you in that direction or move you to have the motivation to pursue well, it. I mean, well, do hang you on, want ben, it? Ben. I mean, oh, that's okay. I was just going to say, NATO mentioned history. And, and also, most of us in America, let's say in the United States and Canada at this point, Jews now are dealing with various historical realities. Most of us had grandparents or maybe great grandparents who came from Europe or who came after the Holocaust. You know, one of two choices, I guess there's German, the German wave, the, you know, the Russian and, and, Lithuanian and Latvian wave and then and then there's after the war so I feel like a lot of this 
in the, in the question of the cycle, a lot of this is related to that history. And those people brought tradition, you know, they, it's, it's immigrant history as much as it is anything. You mentioned your dad in New York. It's, it's the history of Judaism in certain neighborhoods. It's urban history for the most part. It's hiding your Judaism because it's you needed to. Right. It's, it's, it's that gen- Well, it's the generation of our grandparents and then the generation of our parents who practiced quite differently than our grandparents. I mean, and so, and then, so I guess the question that comes out of this is, is there a form of practice that's unrecognizable to other generations because it's, I mean, you're dealing with all kinds of factors now. You say, read the blog or look at the group. The internet's another one, obviously, that's changing everything. Uh, Unplugged is. Or we did this 10Q project, the reboot, where we had between the high holidays, 10 questions of reflection. And it was on the Jumbotron in Times Square, each of the questions every day. So, yeah, I mean, there is a form that, that emerges for this generation that is different. And, and I guess there's, my feeling is that there's a kind of practice that maybe will be defined later. It might not resemble other kinds of practice that existed already. Well, I also, I mean, I wonder if how, how this conversation unfolds in different places, like in different regions, right? Because three of us are Bay Area Jews, which is a specific thing. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, and like I was living in New York for six months last year, and I just felt like it was a different, like there was so much, mo- so much more Jewish to choose from there. Like, except it, like I lived there for thirteen years until three years ago, and all of my Jewish friends, not a single one was bar about mitzvah. They are all Jewish families living in New York, whereas in the Bay Area, like we had less. So we clung to it more and like people like went to Hebrew school, but like there's a difference. I mean, I know there's variation in New York. Not everybody doesn't go, but like friends who lived, grew up in Riverdale or on the Lower East Side, very Jewish families, no Hebrew school training. And what about you, Nato? I mean, did you, did you do anything out there? Like you had all this Jewish to choose from? Uh, well, I mean, I was working around the clock, but so I didn't really do things that were not comedy, but, uh, uh, I, mostly I was just like, I, I walked around Hasidic neighborhoods a lot and was sort of just like marveled at it. And, and also, I mean, you know, and I was living with friends of mine who were, you know, it was a partially Israeli family. And so like there was around me a lot. And, and, and what I, I mean, I, I, and because I was there to work with Kamau and coming from being black in San Francisco and me being Jewish in San Francisco, like for both of those things, there is so much more of a range of, of black and Jewish in New York that you don't feel like when you're there, you have to carry it for your whole people. Mm. Um, so like that there's, and that was really refreshing, you know, that there's more, you could just be a dude. Um, so, uh, I, before we come into shore, I wanted to ask, um, both of you about your contributions to the unscrolled book, as long as we're talking about the text and wrestling, dealing with the text. And so you, you had a passage from numbers, Caitlin, uh, about a vengeful God and you had a passage from Exodus. Uh, and, um, I really enjoyed reading both of the passages. Like, I'm not sure that I would have, I had something like, I, I don't feel drawn to look at the Torah and not sure that I felt would feel drawn to pull, like devour the book. But I, so I, I just wanted to hear some about sort of how you went through, like converting this passage into the thing that you wrote. 
Well, for me, uh, you know, I read the story. Like I said earlier, I thought about this idea of a vengeful God. I thought about the core question in this piece, um, in which is which I interpreted as um, truth versus peace, right? Like telling the truth when it's difficult, even though everybody's really pissed at you, versus um, saying what you need to make everything okay. Um, and and in a in a masterful selfish twist I made this piece be about um about myself about my own life and I don't actually feel comfortable necessarily with memoir in general but when I thought about all my my humor plays for the for the for the interpretation of this piece it all felt canned and removed and distant whereas like it it sort of admitting something true about myself how it related to this story for me um felt more honest and and a better way to go about it um so I kind of scrapped my um, potentially funnier uh, interpretations for something that felt more painful and honest. And the story that you tell, uh, I, so uh, I'm married and on our way to deciding to get married, I'm, my wife and I both come from divorce. And so we're fairly deliberative about all of our decisions. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and so I asked people in my life if they would tell us if they thought we shouldn't be married. And every single, all my best friends, everybody we talked to said, I wouldn't tell somebody unless I, unless I thought there was overt abuse. If I thought it just wasn't good enough or you could do better or you didn't seem happy or you were going to be stifled, I, wasn't, I wouldn't say anything. And I just, I found that shocking. And so like I... Well, so in, in the story, just I, I tell the story of one friend who told me not to get married and how of all the things I remember about that time and I try not to remember that time, uh, that one thing, that act, which I felt was really courageous of her. It's like, you know, it's a much lighter version is like kids' names. You tell somebody, oh God, I knew someone named Lillian when I was a kid. Ugh, what a bitch. And then they named their daughter Lillian and you're the asshole, you know? Uh-huh. Or, or they ask you, what do you think of my boyfriend? And then you say, like, I kind of thought it was a dick. And then they get married, you know, right. right? It's in this continuum. This friend really felt like it was her obligation to tell me. I didn't I didn't ask her if I shouldn't be married. Like, she said to me, she asked me a bunch of questions. And then she said, I don't think you should marry him. And, you know, her reasoning was sound. And, uh, and I didn't listen to her. And she came to the wedding, even though she didn't think it was right. You know, she wasn't going to sort of take some stand. It wasn't about her. She was just kind of looking out for me. And, uh, and, and she was right. So anyway, the, the uh, thinking about that story, relating it back, um, to, uh, to this Bible story, which, you know, someone might argue is not a, an actual interpretation of Shalak Laka. Um, I, I, I had a lot of fun doing that. David, will you allow it as an, as an interpretation? I allow it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, sir. (laughs) I went the almost 180 degrees the other way because um, generally speaking, I'm not comfortable writing personal essays, though I've written some. And when I first got this assignment, I've written those Times Lives pieces in the back of the magazine, those kinds of things. And so when I, when I first heard about this book, that was my thinking. Try to find something in, in my life in some way, even if I treated it comically or treated it in some surreal way that was related to this set of questions. And I did the Mishpatim, which is about the laws and Moses explaining the laws and uh, I guess this this is the second time up. He, this is when he goes back up and he comes down and he explains the law. So as I went, I was working on this novel called The Slippage at the time, and I had this scene that fell out. It wasn't really fitting in the book. It was about some of the characters in the book, and they went to do a card game. So I got this assignment at that time, and I just was sitting with this these two ideas, personal essay, make it meaningful to me, this little piece of the novel which didn't really fit. 
And I solved it by throwing out the personal essay and just writing a story around those ideas. And, and again, I think the same thing is true. I don't know if it's an interpretation. But I sat enough with the questions, and I read the original passage, and I had a way of, of uh, engaging with it, that I think it has to be, by definition, an interpretation. Whether the interpretation is, ultimately, these things do become stories. I mean, part of my thinking when I was done is that the way these things work is that they do become closed stories. And just like in any literature, and this is why I went away from an essay, part of the struggle to locate yourself in them involves reading it like fiction. For me, if when I started thinking about it as an essay, in a way it was too transparent. And I thought, well, I'll just see where I am in this. And then I won't really grapple with the questions as much. It, it'll be too upfront and I'll, I'll be able to, you know, evade it that way. So fiction, which is more indirect and, and easier in some ways for me, ended up being the way I went with it. And so I just took this, you know, card fragment and turned it into a little story about Moses uh, telling people rules, but a modern Moses. And by card fra- fragment, you mean card game? A card game, yeah. Did you uh, talk to anyone else about the passage? Because I actually called Amachai in Israel. I didn't call Amachai, but I, <laughs> I talked to my wife about it. And I, I, I talked about it just because, like you, I don't do this study on a regular basis, but I do text study every single day. That's all I do. Yeah, so the same way that I would, you know, same way if I was getting ready to write two weeks ago an obit for the New Yorker about Lou Reed, you know, and I talked to my wife about that. This is what I'm going to say. Does this sound stupid? Do I sound too sentimental? That's what I did with it, that same kind of thing. But I didn't really formally study it. So I could be very wrong, I guess, is the... The same way that I consulted my wife this week when I was writing gay erotic fan fiction about Ender's Game. Right, exactly. uh, For a live performance. Talk to the expert. (laughs) And one day an entire people will study assiduously (laughs) that. That might be the only thing left. That could be the Bible in a thousand years, your gay Ender's Game fan fiction. (laughs) I I, I think it's funny that we both like talk in our descriptions about um, trying to grapple with something that makes us a little uncomfortable, like the form, like figuring out the form. And I I definitely, um, I did something, I, I have on the record with all my friends as hating footnotes I think other than in a other than in a um, historical text they have no place in fiction <laughs> I would go to the to the mat on this so in my Dave story Edgar's not happy <laughs> no <laughs> don't tell Dave um, uh, but in 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 my story I decided to use footnotes kind of just to screw with myself because I thought that would be a way to make myself a little uncomfortable and kind of have to work on it and I think that that's again sorry Jewish, right? Like, this makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to do it. I'm going to work through it. I'm going to try this. That's dumb. And then you come to something a little better. When you read it, how do you do the footnotes? Do you say them in a low voice? Well, you're, like, you're going to, I, I will mean, find out, you're right? going to find out well, tonight. And David it, and I will get to judge it. Oh, God. Well, I have to say <laughs> that. Your footnote that, presentation uh, was awful. <laughs> well, but Ben, I have to say, this is a very, if I had known you before this moment, I would have asked you because I really struggled with that question. And I eventually came up with something which I hoped will be more entertaining than the other ways that I tried it. Is it like one of those old double doors? And then you go to the bottom door. I thought I did think about doing all sorts of corny, like theatrical black box theater shit. Like, you know, like I put on a cape and then I read the footnote or like I sit in a chair in a spotlight over here. And it just all was German just, minimalist it, yeah. interpretations of and, can, go ahead. can I just say that, like you asked me before, do I accept that interpretation? And like, you know, I, I, I the reason that I do accept that interpretation and these interpretation, the interpretations in this book is because that's the whole point of of this of this book of not just this book, but the Torah is that it is a, a book which has, for thousands of years, provoked reflection on 
the sort of the biggest existential questions of human life. And there's something special about a book that can do that. And there's something special about a people that has developed this interpretive tradition, which like goes in all, in all like infinite directions. And that's, that's the, that's the way I think we're supposed to relate to this book. Like the stories in there, they, some of them are uncomfortable and some of them we do wrestle very mightily with, but it's like, it is, I think, on some level, a, a metaphor. I mean, it's all a metaphor. And by that, I mean, I'm a believer. I'm into it. Like, but I mean, it has to be a metaphor because nobody really knows what God is or how. I mean, that's, that's a principle of our faith. Like, we can't really understand any of this. Like, this is just a way of trying to, to dig our way into some of these most important questions. And Ben and Caitlin, do you feel like this process of wrestling these passages into your own voice was useful or illuminating to you did you did you want to go back to it when you were done and look at other passages yeah i mean i I think i went back to it in the same way that i go back to the bible always but it, it, it sparked another cycle of that which is that i generally don't but it's on that same shelf it's on you know everything is in terms of bookshelves and it's right up there with it's, it's Emily Dickinson, and it's Melville, and it's the Bible, and it's a bunch of other texts that I know have a lot in them. And when, I get, when I'm in the frame of mind to think, oh, now I'm going to see how language works in this way, or how thought works when it engages with language, then I'll go get it, and I'll just start to read and start to figure things out. And that particular day, you know, in between TV and music and everything else, that's the way that I'll engage with it. I, it wasn't an organized return. But yeah, it, it definitely started another cycle of going back and thinking about these things. But these questions that are in all these chapters and all these passages, I think about all the time anyway. I, I definitely, I do also think about them. I thought, though, my experience with this story was the most exciting part for me was talking to Amachai, right? Not because he was telling me this is how it is, but because he was challenging me, like, well, why do you think that? Why, are you, why do you think that that's what it means? And, you know, for me, the piece that's the most exciting about the Torah is the discussion about it and the argument, right? So I do enjoy reading it, some of it, um, but, but I enjoy even more discussing it. I, uh, uh, I, so I met Abachai two years ago. I, was in, I happened to be in New York visiting Occupy Wall Street when I was on tour uh, and, and discovered that he and other people were through Occupy Judaism were doing an Occupy Simchat Torah ritual. And they and so we went down there. I saw it on the internet, and we went down there, and they did the thing where they unrolled the the whole scroll and had everybody hold it, and uh, and like I got choked up, uh, and I was t- like I, I I mean I could probably count on one hand the number of Simchat Torah events I had been to in my life prior to that point, but it was like being in that space with the fucking police helicopters over us and the and the shitty hippie drum circle a hundred yards away and the people selling shawarma to the Occupy Wall Street people and the the that that the how inspiring that moment was about of possibility and revolutionary change and then being in the in this with this group of Jews where uh people are talking about you know the the core ethical mandates to care for the needy uh throughout you know throughout the tradition and the practice was like inc- blew my mind uh and so you know i and, and and i can't quite figure out sort of what what it was that you know th- why it was that that it was a, it was a jewish religious thing that touched me in that way or if there's a way to get that feeling more or whatever but you know and then we we interviewed Amichai and and Daniel Sidorowski about uh, uh about this stuff further for uh for the documentary we're working on and and we asked them about uh 
do comedians have a role in changing the world? And they and and Daniel started ranting us about at us about you know as uh, at, at, you know just as uh, you know your job is to take a sledgehammer to the idols you know um, so it was like oh that's totally we have we have we have we have a, a mandate from the Torah to uh, uh, use comedy as a weapon for good totally I, I, that's such a powerful image to me and and I I think to begin to try and, and wonder about your question as to why this was a, like such a powerful experience. I think it's because like there was something there from the past. There was something there that was, uh, was old, and, and yet it was this scene that was totally new. That is to say, you're right, if you had just been there protesting, that also would have been a Jewish experience. You're right, I concede activism, intellectualism, humor, these are all Jewish things, but I think that like what we're striving for is to... Is, a Jewishness that takes something eternal and moves it into the future and discovers something totally new. Uh, the, the, you just uh, talking about Occupy Wall Street reminded me of something that, in addition to writing fiction, I do ghostwriting. So this year I ghostwrote, this past year I ghostwrote uh, Questlove's memoir. And now I'm starting to work on George Clinton's. So I'm at the point now in talking to him and you know, is cool. interviewing him. And the P-Funk mythology, you know, which is this ancient, it, it involves... Uh, the pyramids, it involves outer space. And as I've talked through that with him... The placebo syndrome. It's a very strange... I wouldn't say it's Jewish in any way. I mean, his version of it isn't. But even my engagement with him on it is not. But that same set of questions that you mentioned and that you just mentioned of old and new and bringing in old traditions and making something of them that's creative in the moment and appealing to a broader audience as a way of... I mean, he all he does basically, I don't know if there's an official honorary Jew program, but basically all he does is sit around and think about these same things. Mm-hmm. Where do we come from? How do we know if we're being fair to people? Are the rules that we're told, is traditional marriage, is that the right way to do it? If it's not, what's the right way to do it? So... In, in piecing through, in piecing that mythology together with him, it, it really is its own kind of, I mean, he's obviously just grabbing all kinds of pop culture things as he went. And he says he was never that serious as he was doing it. Now looking back, he feels he was very serious. Mm. As he built it in 1976, he just wanted to be funny and interesting. Now looking back, he sort of developed a real system of how he thought about things. And so that's, when you say you got choked up, weirdly in talking to him a few times, that's happened. I've thought... Wow, you really did grapple with this through this very strange medium of, of you know funk music and and you know seventies pop charts in this very odd way, but you built your own mythology and, and it's it's a uh, it's impressive. I mean, it's, it, his achievement is impressive, but it's a nice way of reflecting back. And I guess that's the question. You see those things, whatever it is, you see them in Occupy movements, you see them in mythology, you see them in technology, whatever you know, whatever version it is that we come to. Full disclosure: I've also gotten choked up seeing Bootsy Collins live. So no, true. Um, <laughs> or seeing the Shema. Uh, <laughs> right. So uh, I think th- I have a feeling this discussion will continue till the end of time. But I feel like we, we, uh, in the words of uh, Parmenides or Heraclitus, we stepped into the same river once. So uh, I think we could call it the NATO sessions for today. Thanks a lot, uh, Ben Greenman, Kate, Kaylin uh, Roper, and uh, Rabbi David Kasher, yeah. and the Contemporary Jewish Museum for letting us occupy the building. Thank you. We did. Thanks, Nina. Thanks.